Stewart, Arnie, Jacob, podcasters, reviewers, searching for a film that can be both smart and entertaining. Then the upcoming release of The Avengers alters their movie viewing. And now the podcast hosts watch each and every film based on Marvel Comics' The Incredible Hulk. They're watching all Marvel movies and reviewing each at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The Incredible Hulk series contains detailed spoilers for the Hulk TV movies and Ang Lee film, as well as mild language and subjects. Listener discretion is advised for the conversation that dwells within. Today we're discussing Hulk, starring Eric Bana, Jennifer Connelly, Sam Elliott, welcome back, sir, Josh Lucas, and Nick Nolte, directed by Ang Lee. Yo soy Arnie. No me hagas enfadar. No te va a gustar cuando este enfadado. Stuart, in L.A. Hey, you weak little specks of human trash. This is Jacob. And here we are, in theaters. Thank God. After so many weeks of subjecting Stuart to Bill Bixby, (laughs) we are now here with Hulk from 2003, and I've got to tell you guys, I remember seeing this movie opening night. I remember the anticipation I had for this movie is honestly probably on par with the anticipation I currently feel for Avengers. I remember analyzing the trailers. I remember being in online chat rooms defending how bad the CGI looked in the trailers. Going that night, we could barely find seats. It was a sold-out show. It was a carnival atmosphere. There were people out front selling Hulk balloons to children. Hmm. Arnie, are you on an alternate Earth? Because here's what I remember about this film. They had that Super Bowl trailer with, like, the half-done CGI, and everyone started panning it right then. And then I remember reviews not being good. Like, I saw this in theaters. It was two or three weeks after it was out. But I don't remember this big fanfare from this film. I remember this film got trashed before it was ever released. Well, keep in mind, this came out one year after Spider-Man. And Spider-Man was a crowd-pleaser and a box office smash, I think, Everyone in my town went for the next Spider-Man, Hulk. And that's why I was there. But going a couple weeks later may have made all the difference. This movie does hold the record, or did at that time, for the biggest drop-off week one tickets to week two tickets. The day this opened was actually the day that I left the country on an extended trip, and I did not see movies, hear music, know anything. I really did not have an entertainment summer of 2003. I did, however, see this movie in summer 2003. I saw a bootleg of Hulk, a unfinished version of the movie, and the reason why I knew it had to not be completely done was because there are times where you see Hulk crack. The pants come and they go. (laughs) Well, isn't there a triple X Hulk version out? Maybe it was an early cut of that. I don't know. Actually, the pants come and go in the theatrical cut, too, you know. There are naked Hulk scenes. I mean, frame by frame. I mean, literally, he's standing there taking down the tanks. 
And the next scene, <laughs> he is showing his tank. Yes. Wow. I don't know how I would react to that. And, you know, the color timing wasn't right. It was obviously an unfinished work print. And it allowed me on some level to give them a whole lot of credit. I did not know what the finished version of the movie would look like. So if any of the effects were unconvincing, I would just be like, well, they probably fixed it when they did a final movie. I had never seen the movie again until this podcast. So this is the first time that I've seen the movie completed. And this one took a long time to get to screens. We mentioned last podcast how they wanted to, as Stuart said, do the Hulk right. And certainly this is a return to his comic book roots for people who did know the Hulk only from the Bixby series. I'm sure this was a little bit of a shock to them. But this is going way back to the comic origins and the comic feel a lot more again much like spider-man was doing at the same time yeah they actually started development on this avi arad and gail ann hurd who produced aliens and both the first two terminator films they started work on this the same year that that death of hulk came out this was yeah 13 years in the making basically and went through a whole lot of different iterations i did kind of enjoy looking at all the people that sort of came and went on the project from time to time it's always amusing to see those long and developed projects and what could have been you know this could have been a joe johnson movie who did jurassic park 3 and he did the captain america movie we're going to be watching in a couple of weeks he did the rocketeer if you remember that superhero movie yep yeah, he's sort of kind of a go-to, get-it-done kind of guy. He was going to do a version mid-90s, and then the budget spiraled out. And then John Hensley, who did the Thomas Jane Punisher. This was supposed to be his directorial debut. And he had a script with J.J. Abrams and the guys that wrote Problem Child, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, yes. Got table in 1998. And although the excuses given were that the budget was getting out of hand, 1998 was also the year that Batman and Robin came out, and I think superhero properties were just starting to cool off. I think that we had been superheroed out at that point, and many people were thinking, this is not the time for Hulk. And it languished again. They wanted to make it a comedy. They always play that card. Well, let's make it a comedy. Bill Murray was supposed to be Batman. You know, Jack Black was supposed to be Green Lantern. Well, this Hulk was going to be Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler. What? Wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. No, in the late 90s, that's what they wanted to do. Let's make it a joke. Let's make it funny. Let's watch Adam Sandler get mad and do his whole little rage bit, and he'll turn green. Wow. But after the mask, I can kind of see why. Yeah, no. And Jim Carrey, yeah, he is a walking cartoon. I mean, any comic book property, I'm sure his name was on the list of potential stars. No, they came and they went, and it wound it out in the most unlikely of hands. I got to say that there's no reason to think really, that it would wind up being helmed by Ang Lee. And Ang Lee, at this point, I only knew him for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which got a lot of buzz when it came out. And I went and saw it in theaters because I thought it was a kung fu movie. Oh, Arnie. (laughs) I want to clarify, I didn't hate Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I just got tired of seeing people do ballet on treetops. I knew Arnie was going to to rag on that movie. It's a movie I actually really like, and I like most Ang Lee movies. I want to say right now, I'm a fan of his work. What I most like about him is that you never can predict what he will do next. 
He can go from Brokeback Mountain, Sense and Sensibility, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, to Hulk. I mean, who does that? You know, who does with that kind of range? A comedy about Woodstock, then do a movie about Chinese spies in the 40s. I mean, he has incredible gift for taking on new challenges. How successfully he does that, well, I'm sure we're going to get into that. But it's not surprising that he would want to take the challenge of doing a comic book movie. But it is surprising to me that they would say, this is our guy to do Hulk right on the big screen. I was excited. I didn't know much about Ang Lee. I had seen Crouching Tiger. I knew what his reputation was. And I was excited that they were getting someone that was not the conventional choice for this movie. I was hoping that it was going to be something different. I always enjoy when my expectations are subverted in a positive way. And so I was excited when I heard this artsy, gutsy Ang Lee was coming to this who wasn't afraid to do his thing, to do something different. Yeah. When you're hiring Ang Lee, the one tie that I can see in all of his films is that they're always going to have a core dramatic aspect. That he may be dealing with genre conventions, but at the end of the day, it's going to be about family dynamics. You're going to have a dramatic core, and I like that. I mean, when we get to Batman, and we're not so much further from Batman at this point, I really enjoy the way that Nolan takes it seriously and pushes some real dramatic aspects of it. I think when you ask us to take it seriously, this is the same summer this is coming out as X2, which I still hold as, well, now the second best X-Men movie. I think that I like it when they get a little bit more serious and a little bit more ambitious. As someone that's not a comic book fan, all these were green lights to me. Hearing who was getting involved, I thought Hulk got lucky because he was getting an upgrade. And I was really looking forward to this, as I said. I thought that Ang Lee was the great choice for director. While I didn't care for the treetop ballet, I did like the dramatic aspects of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And remember, I read a lot of The Hulk. The Hulk is a dramatic tragedy. I thought he was the right guy for this kind of thing. And I thought that The Hulk would enable him to be a bit, this may seem funny, but more grounded. I thought that the Hulk has to smash. There wouldn't be any dancing on treetops. I was very, very excited for this film. No doubt it's an entirely different project than if they had made it just a couple years earlier with Jim Carrey or the guy that wrote Armageddon and made Punisher 2004. I'm convinced it's Crouching Tiger. It was the film he made right after Crouching Tiger that was perceived as an action movie and made a ton of money. And so that, I think, is what got him the gig. But had he had any other film out in the public consciousness, I don't think anyone would have called Ang Lee for Hulk. It could have been so many things when you hear about the different script versions, but I guess we ought to tell them what it wound up being. Arnie, how about a plot? In New Mexico, David Banner is a military scientist looking to find a way to prevent soldiers getting wounded in battle. But when site boss General Ross refuses to allow Banner to experiment on human subjects, Banner secretly tests on himself. Which is fine until Banner's wife gets pregnant and a genetic mutation is passed on to Banner's son, Bruce. Whenever he gets mad, toddler Bruce's skin turns a greenish gray and starts to distend. Searching for a cure for his son, David goes a bit nuts at his project to shut down, so David sets off an explosion that destroys the entire base, then goes home to kill his son. But his wife gets in the way and is accidentally stabbed in the process. 
Fast forward 30 years and Bruce, now last name Krenzler, is a scientist working on a program to heal wounds with a combination of nanomeds and gamma radiation. Working with scientist and recent ex-girlfriend Betty Ross, their work is to be bought by Glenn Talbot, who works for Archimax, a company that does a lot of government contracting for the profit and military applications of their work. But a lab accident endangers a lab tech, and to save the tech, Bruce jumps in the way, the laser fires, and exposes Bruce to gamma radiation and nanomeds. But while it should have killed Bruce, he seems perfectly fine. In truth, the gamma radiation released the beast within Bruce, and whenever he turns angry, he becomes the Hulk. And unlikely as it may seem, his father returns to the picture, now played by Nick Nolte, posing as a janitor at the lab. He has returned to reconnect with his son, and when he sees what his son has become, realizes that there is great strength for himself in Bruce's research. Meanwhile, Betty's father, who happens to be the same General Ross that used to work with David Banner, knows that Bruce can be dangerous, knows of Bruce's past, and conspires with Talbot to keep Bruce away from Betty. There are several Hulk-out appearances that we'll talk about. The Hulk ends up fighting the army after being captured by Talbot, who wants to extract cells from the Hulk for further research. All the while, David Banner is experimenting on himself, exposing himself to the nanomeds and gamma radiation, but finding an altogether different result as now he can touch and take on the qualities of the metal around him. Needing the Hulk's energy in order to prolong his own life and stabilize his mutation, David turns himself into Betsy with the understanding that Betsy will make her father allow him to see Bruce one last time. But in that final confrontation, David bites into an electrical cable, becoming a being of electricity. Bruce turns into the Hulk, and the two jump through clouds or something. Uh. <laughs> I'm hoping Stuart can explain this to me <laughs> later on. Okay, I'll try. General Ross then nukes the site where the two banners are fighting, and it seems over with Bruce floating in the water until we fast forward to one year later where... Ross is reporting that crazies are still reporting sightings of giant green men, and we see Bruce Banner now working as a medic in South America, and when local militants try to take the medicine, he says, in Spanish, don't make me angry, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, as his eyes turn green and credits roll. You know, it's confusing having learned that it was David Bruce Banner, you know, in the TV series to now know those are two different people that are father and son. It's just the start of some confusion here. But I had trouble keeping track of these names. Well, and they use David as an homage to the TV show because in the comic book, Bruce Banner's dad is Brian Banner. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, for at least a third of this movie, Bruce Banner is under his foster family name, Bruce Krenzler. So, you know, even though there's only five people in this entire movie, (laughs) I'm having trouble keeping track of who is who. And most people are played by two actors. (laughs) There's the... 70s, 80s incarnation of these characters for Bruce Krenzler and his stepmom. There's then a middle teenage years and then there's their adult years and we keep getting flashbacks where these characters intertwine. We got a lot to talk about, guys. (laughs) It's certainly true and I hope that we can parse some of this stuff out. It is confusing. 
Well, as we usually do with the movies that came after Spider-Man, I always like to comment on the Marvel logo here, all green for the Hulk. I didn't know they were going to do this. I couldn't remember whether they had been doing this yet, but they but started at what? With Spider-Man? Is that- Spider-Man was the first. Okay. And Daredevil, I guess, was the second. If I didn't get the Spider-Man feel off the flipping Marvel logo, though, these opening credits are like the Spider-Man stuff to a T with all the cellular mitosis and everything. Is this like every Marvel opening now, it's DNA and cells. It seems like just about, I mean, what, the Punisher we didn't get it because he's not a superhero, he's just helped out by a witch doctor or something, but it just seems every Marvel film, we get the DNA shot. It is, at this point, a go-to when Amazing Spider-Man comes out. I'll be shocked if we don't get it. And of course, all the X-Men films kind of start there, too. Yeah, that's probably the one that originated it. Although, as Jacob pointed out earlier, this retrospective, I guess really the Incredible Hulk started it. With the TV series having the mutating DNA. Well, you gotta have fancy credits. Ever since the mid-90s, that was the thing. You couldn't just have titling, you know, rolling up on a screen. It's an opportunity to hook the audience into the feel and the look of the world. And it certainly does that. I mean, you're gonna know from just the beginning here that this is more of a collage than standard storytelling. That a lot of information is just gonna come at you from a lot of different ways. And good luck figuring it all out. I was surprised how compressed the storytelling was at the beginning. You do have to pay attention. I actually watched this opening scene a couple of times for this retrospective because it starts filling you in. Now, is it information you absolutely need to know that, hey, they used a starfish DNA because it has this property or a sea cucumber DNA because it has that property? No. But if you do pay attention, you get a little bit more insight into why the Hulk works the way he does. And I actually really like this opening for every reason you guys have both mentioned. First of all, I do like that we see this movie trying to provide a bit more of a realistic scientific basis to the Hulk and his regenerative properties than either the TV series with just, I threw myself some gamma radiation, or the original comic where I was near a bomb explosion here. It's looking at it scientifically about animals that do regenerate, that do heal. I think we're going to be getting into this with Amazing Spider-Man and the Lizard, because that's a big Spider-Man villain plot, but... I liked that here. And the visual style you mentioned, Stuart, I love these opening credits. The way they look, the way you have David Banner picking up a sheet of paper and on the back of the paper and this fluorescent is a credit and that credit is like shown in mirror on his face shining through the paper. It's just astounding the work that went into just these credits. Unlike Spider-Man or X-Men where you're just bouncing from graphic to graphic, the integration of the human elements really add something. And you point out something even more that I love, and that is this is happening at a time where scientific work was done by paper and pencil. No computers. None of that cyber gadgetry. I feel like that's a shortcut these days. We always expect computer printouts and readouts, but we're in 1966, and really it's capturing a retro vibe that really none of these superhero movies have done other than, say, First Class, which comes much later. And then the other thing we get with this whole opening credits... A Danny Elfman score. Now, Elfman, you mentioned Batman already, Stuart. Elfman, really well known for his Batman score, done a number of big superhero and movie scores since then. Coming into this, and I get the impression he wasn't wanted because Ang Lee kept telling him, that's too Danny Elfman, change the music. But 
I like his score here. I like what he did, and I like this opening theme. It is Elfman, but I, I'm an Elfman fan, unabashed. So I'm enjoying the music. I'm enjoying the visuals. I'm enjoying the science. I'm immediately into this movie. As for the characters we get here, we get to see young David Banner and young General Ross. Now, I don't think that the Banner actor did a very good Nick Nolte, but this guy who's doing Ross has Sam Elliott to a T. I almost thought that they, like, de-aged Sam Elliott for the voice in the face. Yeah, I thought maybe they had Elliott do the lines and overdubbed it. Maybe they did, because the voice is perfect, but... This guy also has the face. He just looks like a younger Sam Elliott to me. What's weird is he's Tiffany Amber Thiessen's brother. But do we not know about Sam Elliott's sex habits (laughs) at the time of her conception? (laughs) He was a swinging dude in the 70s. Wouldn't surprise me. But there is, like you said, Jacob, a lot of story conveyed here in these first few scenes and i did not remember watching this movie i haven't seen this movie in about five years before this review i did not remember how much was spilled in these opening scenes i knew we were getting some flashbacks i remembered that but i was surprised they showed as much as they did of david experimenting on himself and of little baby bruce who gets mad and turns grayish green they actually did do gray as an homage to that first issue of hulk where he was gray i'll be honest i didn't notice that they had done any special effects work on the kid i didn't know that he changed into anything yeah it's just very subtle you look at his leg where there's a bruise it's not his whole body and i don't think i noticed it the first time i watched this film it was on subsequent watchings it's subtle but it's there they give Mm. you these hints and that's what i like about this film as i'm watching it again things are starting to pay off because it's really at least at this beginning getting part it's very compressed and there's a lot going on and it pays off for repeat viewings i just like the whole los alamos vibe i mean i think the whole history of the atomic bomb is interesting Uh, the idea that we went out in the middle of the desert and did these tests and the scientists that did that and exposed themselves to this radiation and didn't know what would happen all of that i find fascinating it's a little off the time frame i'm wondering why they're still doing that in 66 we're 20 years and more beyond hiroshima but i like this vibe there's something very eerie and old Americana about it. Well, and I think you said, Arnie, earlier that this is a much more comic influence take on the Hulk. And so when you get that, I don't know if it's supposed to be a gamma cloud, mushroom cloud rising into the sky, but that's very much more to the comic book origins of the Hulk. And indeed, this whole opening storyline, this abusive father, all from the comic book, very much influenced from the comics, unlike the Bixby take. All of these psychological aspects that we're going to be talking about in Hulk are straight from the comics. But what is the biggest straying from the comic here is that Bruce's father experimented on himself and Bruce was born the Hulk. He was transforming long before his lab accident, as we see here. He's turning green. He's getting upset. It is in him from birth. In the comics, yeah, his father was abusive, but his father didn't pass on any DNA abnormalities. And I'm of kind of two minds about this. On the one hand, by 
having this DNA thing, it makes Bruce very unique. The problem with the comics is once you have, you, if you're exposed to gamma radiation, you become a Hulk. Well, the next thing you know, everybody's exposing themselves to gamma radiation. And there's like a dozen Hulk characters in the comics now. There's She-Hulk. There's two Hulks, red and green. There's two She-Hulks. There's Son of Hulk. There's Abomination, the Russian Hulk. There's just way too much of that. So by making it a DNA thing, you help prevent that kind of Hulk proliferation, but it also makes the final accident not that important in the scheme of things. You also play into Ang Lee's big themes. Like I said, he is always about family taboo and family dynamics. Crouching Tiger was all about the sort of destiny and fathers fighting with daughters. And it makes sense that he would want to go here. It makes sense that this is the story that he would want to tell if he's going to tell a Hulk story. Exactly, Stuart. I mean, this is about the cycle of abuse. Can you break that cycle? The abused becoming the abuser. Is it in your DNA? Is it nature? Is it nurture? I think because of the themes that Ang Lee wants to explore with this character, I'm willing to go with this DNA thing because it's very much tied to those themes that he wants to look at throughout this film. To be clear, he wants to be immortal. That's the whole point of all of these experiments is he's trying to find something that will allow him to regenerate any wound that he sustains, that by doing this, he could live forever. That's the theme here, right? But is that, though, because he's a megalomaniac? Or I thought it was because, well, that's his job. He's working for this military science division, and they want to create super soldiers. Yeah, I got out of this. He was just a mad scientist, quite honestly. It's very ill-defined. Hulk author Peter David, who actually wrote one of the best runs ever of the Hulk, wrote a novelization, which I will be reviewing over in Marvelicious Toys, that tries to give David Banner some motivation. But as described here in the film, it's very vague, and out of it, I get he's a mad scientist who's all about the research. He doesn't want to experiment on himself. He just wants human subjects. Ross says no, so he's forced to experiment on himself. And then... As it's described later on, he then becomes obsessed with trying to cure his son, to remove the mutation in the DNA. Yeah, I'm going to be confused about his motivations throughout this film. We'll talk about it, but I watched this film a couple of times for this retrospective, and I'm still not sure what the deal with David Banner is. I watched the movie twice and read the book, and I'm still confused. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of confusion, and we may not work through it, but I don't know. Just by seeing him write, Regeneration is Immortality, the starfish imagery and cutting off the arm and growing back. I feel like that's what he wants. And honestly, that's a universal theme. We'd all like to be able to crack that code. It humanizes him. The character's going to do a lot of things later that I'm not going to like, and then I'm going to turn me against him. But in these moments, I understand the drive. If that's what he's looking for, I get it. That is worth fighting for. That is worth breaking army protocol for. You do it not to make super soldiers. In fact, he's shut down by a general who does not want to create super soldiers. He is doing this for something more primal. And I believe it's a big theme of this movie of wanting to live forever and trying to find how to do that. Well, you know, one time George Lucas described the prequel Star Wars films as like being jazz. And he had kind of an idea of how it would go, but you just sort of make it up as you go along. And it, the particulars don't really matter so long as you get the overall sense of the music. I kind of think Ang Lee and George Lucas would get along if they hung out. Hell, ILM did the work here. Maybe they did hang out because 
I think that Ang Lee's work here is like George Lucas's jazz. It doesn't matter why he's doing it. Hell, half the words in this movie that Nick Nolte speak are unintelligible. It doesn't matter, so long as you get the gist of it and just go with the emotion and the vibe. Perhaps. And I'm not going to say that that's the wrong way to go. I think that can work. And I'm always willing to give points to an ambitious film. You know, when we talked about the first Ghost Rider film, I talked about how it didn't have enough attitude for that character. So if Ang Lee is able to give this some character, some attitude that fits the Hulk, yeah, they may hit a couple of the wrong notes, but I'm willing to give it those points for its ambition. You guys say that he is trying to save his son. I don't see it this way. I see this as a man that wants to self-preserve himself. I don't see him as a good father or even a willing father. He's an accidental father. He's doing these things on himself. The son thing, I think he, at some point he's trying to kill his son. I think he wants to see how far he can push the regenerative qualities, and he's willing to treat his son like a guinea pig. And this is where I get confused by his motivations. There's a scene later on where he talks about how he ended up murdering his wife. And he actually went to kill Bruce because he wanted to kill this monster. He was scared of this monster. But he's such an unreliable narrator. I don't know how to take it. You know, I find that kind of a heartbreaking scene when he's talking about how his wife got in the way and he wanted to just kill this monster, kill this accident he created. But none of his other actions really say that. The rest of the film, he's prodding Bruce and wants him to become the monster and wants to be like him. Like I said, I don't know what to do with David Banner in this film. Oh, but uh, to me, that's not inconsistent. It's very consistent with a very selfish person that did not want to be a father, but did want to cure immortality. He's pushing his son, not because he is trying to live for some other creature. That's the mom. The mom's the gardener. She's the one that grows and nurtures. He is doing it so that he can learn how to preserve himself. It is a generational battle. And later, he wants to suck those powers away from his son back into himself. I see this very much as a man in a deeply self-involved self-preservation mode. He did not want to be a father. It was not a planned pregnancy. He was horrified to know that it was going to continue and only really allow the experiment to go on because it meant that he could have his human guinea pig. He could have his human test subject that the army denied him. But he was, I'm quite convinced, quite willing to put the knife in Bruce here. What I don't understand is, did he set off a nuclear explosion intentionally or did he just do things to blow up the lab that resulted in an explosion? What is with the bomb that goes off? What you're saying about his motivations is what Peter David put in the novelization as his motivations. Everything you've said is how the novel writes it. The novel also writes it as he intentionally created a feedback to destroy everything in that lab as revenge for being fired. Right. That's kind of the way it looks, but it seems extreme. And the fact that he only gets 30 years for it, well, I think you get the chair, actually. (laughs) I think if you actually set off a nuclear bomb, you don't get out of jail at any point in your life. Uh, He pled insanity. That gets you off, doesn't it? Just get you 30. Uh, it does here. Yes, you're right. It does here. But I'm convinced that he becomes the monster at this point. And from much of the rest of the movie, they play with that image of the domestic violence that's happening behind the closed door, that if that door opens, a man with a knife is going to come and kill that child. And while I find this incredibly compelling, Freudian, deeply scary imagery, I am also recognizing instantly this is why 
it's not going to play on a mass level the way Spider-Man is. Because what father wants to take their kid to see some movie about a, a dad that wants to knife his son? I mean, this is heavy stuff. Heavier than probably a lot of people were prepared for. It is, but you know what? I'm really going with it. It may not be something you want to take small kids to. No. The whole reason I told the story about the Hulk balloons being sold in the parking lot is because no child who wants a Hulk balloon should be seeing this movie. This <laughs> is really, it's going to be beyond them. They're going to be confused, bored, and scared. Yeah. But as the comic book movie fan, I'm really digging this. I'm digging that they stuck pretty close to the abusive father origins that come straight from the comics and that they're giving Bruce Banner this backstory and depth. And what I I want to say appreciate, I don't want to like that this is a story about abuse. What I appreciate about what they're doing here is that I felt the Bixby Hulk, I never understood where his anger came from. You know, I understood he kind of felt sad about his wife and that he was too much of a wuss to lift the car up and get her out. I don't know why that lasted for four years or four seasons. Here, I like that if you're going to tell a story about the Hulk, about a person who loses control, let's talk about that anger, where that comes from, whether it's abuse or some other source. I like that it's not just about a guy becoming a big green monster. It's about why he's becoming that big green monster. And quite honestly, the relationship is more relatable because we all have parents and we all have baggage from having those parents that we will carry for the rest of our lives. This is a conflict that we would all have with inside of us. Us. Relating to a spouse that died in a car accident, you might be able to prevent. While we can all sympathize, I don't know that we can all empathize. And certainly with some grief counseling and some work on yourself, <laughs> you could move beyond. But, you know, parent stuff is kind of forever. And maybe it's external and maybe it's internal. But I just think the conflict is way more interesting here than it is the way they set up the TV show. But you mentioned the improbability of only getting 30 years for killing your wife and blowing up a military base. Yes. The first of many improbabilities, the next being that Bruce would just disappear into the adoption system. <laughs> well, what were they going to do? He does not get the knife, and no one knows that he is special and magical, and both his parents are not able to t take care for him. What, I mean, who else is going to raise him? Yeah, what are you expecting here, Arnie? I'm just saying that if you know there was human experimentation going on and all of that... I don't think they did, though. I don't think anyone knew... They knew there was human experimentation, but they know it was on the sun. Correct. They knew that he did it on himself. It's not conclusive whether they knew that little Bruce was affected. Certainly, if they had, I don't think that General Ross would let him out of his sight, but he does disappear, and he does go under a new name. He becomes Bruce Krenzler. And let's be honest, a nuclear bomb had just gone off, you <laughs> yeah. know. Taking care of this kid probably is number one priority. Let's get him to the foster care system, and let's clean up some nuclear waste. Yes, exactly. Everyone get fitted for wigs. <laughs> It just seems to me that the way Ross reacts later when he finds out another improbability, it just so happens Ross's daughter becomes a smart scientist, as does Bruce. So they're both working on the exact same kind of research Bruce's father did. 30 years later, yes. They grew up together, separated, he goes to adoption, and yet they end up partners at Berkeley. Right. 
He forgets everything. It should be said, everything we see, he has repressed. He has no memory of. And we never see them together as children. It's possible they never went to the same kindergarten. They might have been too young for school or homeschool. It's unlikely, but conceivably, certainly in the realm of comic book world, I'll accept this rather far-fetched conceit. And we're introduced to... Banner at his lab, and we get the cameos out of the way early. Stan Lee and Lou Ferrigno together again after Trial of the Incredible Hulk, I guess. And Lou still doesn't get any lines. <laughs> For the best. Have you ever met Stan Lee? Good luck getting a word in. <laughs> no kidding. A literal changing of the guards. He's a security guard ushering Stanley out. Is Stanley, is he a interloper? Is he being kicked out? I wonder if there was something being said here by Ang Lee of like, yeah, we don't need you anymore. But in goes Banner, out goes Lee. They're doing their own thing. And we get that Bruce and Betty used to be an item, which this is an unusual dynamic to see in a movie. I don't think that it's very often that the movie starts right after the breakup. What I love is... I get how bitter they are. Like, they have an exchange at the beginning of this film. You could tell the bitterness from this relationship. I like how real it comes off. And it probably should be said, Ang Lee is married to a scientist. And that she actually did a lot of the scientific formulas and things that you see in the film. That was her contribution. They worked together on this film. So I think it comes from a place of knowing. I think he knows what he's talking about when he's showing scientists who fight, you know, emotionally removed people, eggheads in love. I think he knows what he's doing. But I gotta ask... Jennifer Connelly, she's very beautiful, and, you know, she had just kind of played this role in A Beautiful Mind. Do we need this? Do we need to have a love interest here? Is this a part of the story? If they've established that this story is about fathers and sons, what does she do? Is she playing a mother figure here? Do we need a love story in Hulk? Well, again, this is much closer to the comics. Okay, with Betty Ross. I thought she sewed the flag, by the way. That's what? Betsy that's Ross? Betsy. <laughs> Betsy. Okay. Right. okay. This like, is Betsy. I had to pause. I'm like, where's the needle and thread? All right. Here's what I appreciate, that this is a superhero comic book story of broken people, broken relationships. Everyone, even Betty and her dad, have they're estranged from each other. It's a gutsy place to take a comic book. You know, especially thinking about Spider-Man. And and yes, not everyone's all happy. Spider-Man loses his parents. But this is willing to really delve deeper into that. That no one's got a good relationship. And you see that. You see Bruce and his family, Betty and her father. It's everyone, broken people, trying to come together and overcome their bad parenting or their strained relationships with their parents and try to become adults. Absolutely. And again, I go back to my jazz metaphor here because it's like we see the same refrain just in a slightly different key again and again. And yeah, she is a bit of a mother figure to Bruce. She certainly many times in the movie nurses Bruce back to health or helps him to recover. So she is both mother and lover. Again, very Freudian, very Oedipal. Definitely. Yeah. And she's there. We find out later we flashback. I don't know if it's a flashback or it's a dream. I guess she's repressed the past as well. They both don't remember anything prior to age four or earlier, but she's eating ice cream in a diner we'll see that diner later burned out it is there on the base but her dad leaves her to go handle the explosion and she's alone watching the mushroom cloud did that really happen that way or is that some kind of traumatic kid remembrance that probably isn't totally accurate well the fact that it ends with adult bruce banner putting his hand over her mouth and then 
possibly trying to choke her. There's definitely dream elements. Yeah. It's their subconscious. I think we can say that much. The movie plays a lot with Freudian imageries and archetypes, and this is both of their past bubbling up. They are similar in that way, but I don't know. I'm sure as the story will progress, I'm going to ask this again and again. Do we really need her in this story? I know there's only five people, but there might be one too many. I'm going to say there is one too many. It's not Betty, though, because to me, it's a Beauty and the Beast story, and the thing that allows him to stay connected and the thing that gives the Hulk the impulse is Bruce's love for Betty. It is so much a part of the comic that if you're going to take this to its comic roots, you must have this. And their connection, it's the only hope of the entire movie of a healthy relationship, really. Yeah, they are repairing broken relationships with their parents. I mean, she says, I've had a long history of being connected to emotionally damaged and distant men. You know, her relationship with her own father is as distant as it is with Banner at the beginning of this movie. I get that they're fixing that. I mean, I don't feel like she's a worthless character, but I question if her story is needed. I guess that's what I'm saying. They're doing a good job of mirroring it, but maybe I just want to stay focused because this movie is scattered, to say the least. And it's not the storyline I find most interesting. I'll put it that way. I just think she's needed as a device for the Hulk to latch onto, for someone for the Hulk to care about. Without her, there's no reason for the Hulk not to smash everything. Yeah, or go bang a bunch of chicks like it did in the series. You're right. It works better if he's a monogamous romantic than it does with a (laughs) philandering (laughs) hobo. Yeah, I'll go with you on that. But the fifth character, the one who needs to be cut, is Glenn Talbot, who is a military contractor, slick businessman, and also used to date Betty. This guy, I know he's from the comics. In the comics, he was Major Talbot. He was Ross's right-hand man and really involved in the hunting of the Hulk. I know why he's here for comic reasons, but in this story, he really mucks things up. Yeah, he's not needed. He provides the same role that Ross provides. He could have been the antagonist. We didn't need Talbot here to be the antagonist. I'd agree with you having seen the entire movie. At the start, I guess I just thought he was on to bigger and better things. He's basically like Matthew McConaughey's evil twin, right? That's what this guy is. Like, I get the same vibe, but in a more like nasty key. Like, you know, he's just one bongo away from being Matthew McConaughey, but he's got his smile. You know, when Matthew McConaughey smiles, you think he's fun and a doofus. When this guy smiles, you just know he's a complete ass. And yeah, he's a bully to everyone. He's a problem for General Ross. He's a problem for Betty. He's a problem for Banner. He is the problem to which I would say he needs to be your supervillain. He needs to be the thing that you're going to take down or unites characters to take down. If all these people are broken, they can heal themselves by taking down the big bad guy. And in fact, you're not wrong. In a previous draft of the script, this was set up that he would turn into an evil Hulk before this whole thing was over. Ah, I knew it. I knew that had to be the way it was. I was so surprised that that never happened. I agree with you guys. He ultimately doesn't 
prove to be that different from General Ross and is not needed in the story as it finishes out. But I think he could have worked. I think that's what I'm saying. I think that there could have been a design for him, a blueprint that was not followed or fell by the wayside in all the rewriting. Yeah, but... With the rewrite that took away Evil Hulk and replaced it with Absorbing Father, they needed to just get rid of this character because, first of all, I guess I don't understand much about how scientists work because I would think if you're working on a research thing for a specific company, somebody else couldn't just come in, make you a better offer, and you take your work with you. If they work for the military-industrial complex, I'm sure they have a lot of money and a lot of good lawyers to take you away from there. There's a negotiation there, and I mean, God knows I don't want to see a bunch of contract lawyers arguing about (laughs) all this. I'll take the shortcut. We basically understand that he has an offer to work with someone richer that she used to sleep with, who's a little more emotionally present, if not emotionally likable. (laughs) She could go and have the other thing, but she's going to stick by her job and banner. They're foils for each other, and she's chosen her team. And we like her because, obviously, this guy is a jerk. Do we like Banner? My question for the room. This is Eric Banner. To most people in America, this may be the first time that they're seeing him. He was one of the many men in Black Hawk Down. I don't know if he was the star. He was one of them. But for the most part, if you weren't in Australia, I don't think you would have known who this guy was when he's popping up on screen in the bike helmet. You know, I don't know much of Eric Bana's work, but him as Banner, I appreciate what he brings to the role here. That Do I buy him as an emotionally distant person that has repressed a lot of hurt and anger? Yeah, he pulls that off. He seems like this hurt person that doesn't want to get close to people. So he works for me in this film. I didn't know Eric Bana when I saw this. I had seen Black Hawk Down. He made no impression on me. Seeing him here, he's fine. He's kind of a bland leading man. And I know they have to do this. In the comic book, Banner is the perennial 90-pound weakling. If you want to cast this for the comic book, you know who you get for this role? DJ Qualls. You don't get Ed Norton. You don't get Bill Bixby. You don't get Mark Ruffalo. And you don't get Eric Bana. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the many choices they had for leading man, maybe my favorite one, check this, guys, Steve Buscemi. How great would that be to see Steve Buscemi here? You wouldn't play up the romance angle, but boy, you get the 90-pound weakling. A little too old. Yeah, he would just pull me out of it, no. The other choices were a little more obvious. David Coveney, I like that one. That one makes a lot of sense. Tom Cruise, well, Tom Cruise gets offered everything. And Edward Norton, who passed on it this time. As for his banner, do I like Banner in this? Do I like anyone in this movie? Really? I mean, are they likable people? I enjoy watching his performance. I like that it's something I also have seen in the comics being brought to life in a faithful way, but I don't think I'd want to have beers with the guy. I'm glad he didn't return for any future installments, though. He did nothing to endear me to want him as my Bruce Banner. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, You know what I like about him? I like the physicality of him. He has the face of a child. He still looks like a little boy that got like stretched and pulled. He's super tall. This guy is like huge. I mean, he already is Hulk size, but he looks like a little kid. He's got this innocent face to him and he does very, very little. He plays it low. And I think playing it low means that, yeah, we don't have a lot of emotional connection to him. He's an emotionally distant character. But when I look at him, I see that little boy that we 
saw in the beginning, all grown up and still confused and scared. I do believe him as a traumatized, repressed person. Could the character be more heroic? Could he endear himself more to me? I don't know that that's the movie they're trying to make, but maybe that's a problem too. We'll get there. I'm not saying that I also wanted him recast. There are things he does here I really like. I love some of his performances, especially as the movie goes on. After his accident and when he's able to open up a little more, there's certain scenes he does that I really love, but most of the time, he's adequate. Mm. I don't believe him anytime he's putting on the green suit and running around. He doesn't put on a green suit in this. Oh, that's not a suit? (laughs) And that's not him. That's Aang. Huh? You're talking about the Hulk, right? Of course, yes. Yeah, that's Ang Lee. Ang Lee did the Hulk. God, Ang Lee is built. You should see it. It is hysterical. Ang Lee put on the mocap suit. Well, he put on the blue suit with the little ping pong balls on? Yep, and stomped around like he was Hulk. Oh, awesome. For real? <laughs> For real. The little Asian man is wow. the Hulk. Awesome. I like that. <laughs> Well, I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like it's a different movie when we're seeing him as a human. When it becomes the CGI thing, well, uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, before you can get into turning the Hulk, I'm with Jacob and you. The first time I saw this movie, I didn't notice that little baby Bruce was turning gray. I didn't notice that when shaving, Bruce's eye turned green. I was waiting for the accident to happen to give him the gamma radiation and make the Hulk. And when we get it, it's kind of lackluster. It's a lab accident. There's some tech whose name is not Rick Jones, but should be. Yeah! His name is Harper. Whatever. (laughs) Well, the whole thing about the Hulk is Banner was making a bomb. Rick Jones took a dare. He's a teenager and does a joyride on a nuclear test site. And Bruce runs out to save Rick Jones and knocks him into a ditch. And the expense is he gets flooded with gamma radiation. Bruce became the Hulk heroically. Now... If you have this throwaway character, Harper, and you're going to have Bruce throw himself in the path of a radiation machine to save him, why wouldn't you just name the damn guy Jones? (laughs) Or Petey plot point. I mean, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Petey doesn't do anything. It's ridiculous. I forgot. There are six people in this movie. He is the sixth person. (laughs) He has a name, but I don't think we see him again after this. He is literally here just to enable... Banner to step in and get the radiation. But you say it would make him more heroic if they followed the comic. I don't think they're turning him into a hero. What I like about this scene, I actually love this edit, is when we finally get zapped, what do we cut to? The mushroom cloud. It's this really spooky moment of the green mushroom cloud almost in complete quiet exploding. It's telling us right there everything that is repressed within him, both his powers and his anger and his history, it's all about to go up. It's just a little thing right now, but it's coming. It's lean. It's green. And actually, maybe my favorite moment in the movie is is when he gets zapped. It's not my favorite moment, but I do like it. I do think it's heroic. The whole reason he gets zapped is he's saving Harper. Yeah, Stuart, I'm there with you. I love that mushroom cloud, and I think it's a nice homage to the comic book origin, pushing Rick Jones, or Harper in this case, out of the way of the gamma radiation bomb. I got a question, though. Can you just throw yourself in front of radiation? Doesn't that, like, go through (laughs) things? That's how they do x-rays? 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it plays very well in the lab. I got a question about this as well. Here's my next kerfuffle about what happened and who. We know Nick Nolte's been floating around in and out as this mysterious janitor. Did he screw this up? We don't see a scene of him screwing this up. But I'm wondering if we're supposed to think that he caused this accident to happen. Arnie, you read the book, but yeah. I kind of came to the same conclusion after watching this a couple times as you, Stuart. I think it would play better if that were made concrete. Let me put it that way. Peter David goes a long way to try to put some rationale behind the ludicrous coincidences in this movie, and I will detail them over at MarveliciousToys.com. This one, he never attributed to anything. In fact, he says that the equipment had been faulty in the past, and this was a recurring error that went drastically wrong this time. But it wasn't a machine error that blew up the frog earlier. I mean, that was just that they haven't figured out how to do what they're doing yet. Right. Here, the machine starts when it wasn't supposed to, because there's a problem with it, and Harper's in there trying to fix it, and it starts early. It's not a problem with the machine that blows up the frog, it's a problem with the machine that causes it to fire when they don't want it to. Okay, mistake. Nolte is already there, we know he's mucking around after hours, and we know that he wants his son to achieve his potential. One of my favorite lines comes near the end where he says, I don't want to see you, I want to see my son. He wants to see the Hulk. That's his child. That's his legacy. That's the thing that he wants to emerge. For him not to be responsible for it, to be happenstance, to be just some error that happened to happen, and it could have been Harper that got zapped and not Banna. Oh, no. What a mistake. You said that there were a ton of writers on this. Honestly, I don't know... If it's because there were too many or if the last one just wasn't good enough. But again, I tell you, way too much happenstance in this whole movie. This is but one of many. I just want to say the final writer is the writer. James Seamus works with every Ang Lee movie. There are longtime collaborators. He's written some great scripts. He did Crouching Tiger. He did all the ones before. This is his work that they had to credit a couple other people on because of lawyers and arbitration. But I don't think that this is the hands of many different writers trying to make drafts work. I actually think this is him trying to meld his ideas into established comic book lore. I don't think it's a problem of too many cooks in the kitchen. I think it's a problem of things got lost because maybe they did too many drafts and they thought they had established things that they didn't. Maybe, is there any scene on any extra or anywhere of showing Nolte doing such a thing? No. Okay. Well, that's a mistake. I'm going to reiterate it again. The battle is between father and son. You needed to have the father engage this plot. So we're 30 minutes into the movie. Act one is over. They've really done what they needed to do in the half hour, and they've established the characters, and they've zapped him with gamma radiation, and we know what's going to come out of him in 10 more minutes, and we're into act two. How are you guys feeling about how the movie is actually playing? The story is playing out, I would say, in a very logical, linear way. But the way it's coming at me, with all the split screens, with all the different stylistic things, this is the most cinematically ambitious movie I think any of us have sat down to watch together since Scorsese. In fact, I was thinking about Scorsese with all the dollies and irises and all the crazy camera tricks in here. I love that it's a comic book movie that's respecting the comic book art and trying to interpret it in a new way and trying to use comic book panel visual style and things in a cinematic method. 
I mentioned loving the opening credits. I love the entire look of this entire movie. Everything about it. It is gorgeous. It is a piece of art to behold. And Arnie, when you were talking about jazz, this is really what I thought you were getting at, is the way this film is just shot. There's some risk here, especially for what's supposed to be a blockbuster comic book movie. Oh, we're just going to make it a little bit artsy, just to throw you guys off. Here's an artsy film about child abuse, where we're going to do split screens and do it as comic panels. I love the ambition of this film. I love that it went for that style. I'm going to be a little bit critical of it, though. I don't think... It was used the right way every time. There was times where I think the split screen seemed kind of arbitrary. It was just, let's throw up multiple shots, multiple angles, just to have that. So it's like a comic book, even if those angles don't really make sense. I think of Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, where he does some of this split screen stuff to really good effect. You have a couple laying in a bed, but he does a split screen. They're so close, yet so distant. And I wish there was just a little bit more tightening up of doing these comic book panels. But I love the ambition. I love how different it feels, how Ang Lee's trying to bring in the original medium into this other translation of it, taking the comic book page and putting it onto the screen. I'm going to say what you said, but in a much stronger way. I think that it is a great stylistic choice for a different kind of Hulk movie. I think this would work really well if this were an action-packed Hulk smashing things kind of movie. The stimulus, the movement, and you know, God, lest I bring up you know, Michael Bay, but someone that is always engaging your eyeballs, just rattling you. I think that that is what this does. It makes the movie montage and montage is about movement. But Ang Lee is trying to tell a dramatic story and montage is a horrible way for us to build empathy for these characters. I don't think that the split screens and the colors and all the things they're doing here are aiding the drama. And that is the problem I'm having here. I love this concept for a different movie. I think it is failing the story they're trying to tell. And I would go ahead and look at something old like Creepshow, which kind of did it in a way. There was panels. And I think, you know what, I would have really liked to see two scenes going on at once in different panels. I think that to me would be more comic booky than just having someone walk down a hall and in one screen we see them from the left side and then the other screen we see them on the right. I don't feel like that's how the comic book artist would have drawn it. They would have shown a different scene in a box in between those. Or they would have shown the damage that Hulk was doing in one panel and something that he threw landing in another. You know, I feel like they had an interesting concept. The execution did not make it more exciting. I think the visual style, though, the montage stuff, the more frantic the movie becomes, the more frantic the editing becomes. While there are certainly some split-screen transitions and interesting wipes and multi-angles here, it really seems subdued compared to what we get during the lab accident or later on when he's fully hulked out. I think that one of the failures of this movie is that I can't tell you if it's a drama or an action film, depending on which scenes I'm watching. Absolutely. Or a comedy. I mean, we haven't talked about Nick Nolte yet, but I'm not sure (laughs) that some of this is drama. I mean, really. (laughs) And let's face it. If this is a drama, you would not film a Meryl Streep movie in this way. You would not want a drama to be this noisy and busy cinematically. It would distract from the performances. It would distract from the drama and the pathos and what they're trying to do here. And this is, I think if you were to ask Ang Lee, this is a story of fathers and sons that just happens to have radioactive monsters every now and then. 
Oh, you're right. When he's not talking about CGI on the commentary, which is about 95% of all the bonus features and commentary, he does talk about how he sees this as a tragic Greek mythology type of story. Yeah, I'm getting a little turn off the dark here. Not a lot, but maybe this isn't the project for him. I like that as an element, and it has always been an element. It was an element of that Incredible Hulk pilot, but I feel like... It's got to be both. It's got to be a hybrid. It's got to be a drama that can also act like an action movie. But we don't get an action scene. He doesn't hook out until 40 minutes into the movie. I think that they didn't wait too long. I was actually really engaged for the first 40 minutes. Why does Banner hulk out at 40 minutes? I mean, he's like working in the lab. Betty calls and is like, I talked to my dad. You, Stuart, complained about all the TV movies. He hulked out because the writers wanted him to. At least they threw in a mugger or something to make it happen here he's just walking down a hall he looks a little dizzy he hits his shin on a bucket and it's hulk time i think it's coming out of him i think that he doesn't have a choice i think that we're to understand that the gamma zap is making it inevitable he could go to disneyland and be surrounded with cake and ice cream and he would still turn into the hulk not because he gets mad but just because his repressed anger it's not i stub my toe anger it's all the crap from my childhood that I buried in the last 30 years is coming out. And his dad is there, too. I mean, he does hear dogs squeaking and all. I mean, it does sort of announce that Nolte is literally in his life again. There's also a line that Betty, when she's leaving that message that their work's being taken over by Talbot, he might lose everything that he's been working on. That might piss you off a little bit. Yeah, it could. It just seemed a little forced. It seems better than flipping out over a flat tire to me. I, you know, your life work getting stolen, flat tire. I could understand yeah. the rage of one of those a little bit better. Yeah, Talbot is always here to exacerbate that. Of course, about the actual visual of it, well, they're smart by starting him in the shadows to try to make you accept him little by little. I'm just going to put it out there, you know, this, for its time, was incredibly innovative. CGI characters before Hulk were limited to Jar Jar, Gollum, and Dexter Jetster. And while Gollum may be the high bar of that trio, here they're trying to do things they've never done before, and they fail. This is every bit as bad as Ghost Rider. Look, I got some problems with the designs. He's a little too bulky. It looks like he should be a little bit longer or something. Just the muscle mass isn't right. He's a little too day glow for me. Yeah. There's scenes later on after he's been crawling through the sewers of San Francisco where he's dirty. And I think that looks a lot better when they tone down that green. You know what, though? For the time... I was willing to go with it. And yeah, now it doesn't look great. It's not perfect, but it wasn't the distraction I expected it to be when I first saw this film. Uh, yeah, I don't want this to sound racist, but I don't like his color. <laughs> it just doesn't have the right tint. I think it's the color that accentuates that he's not in the frame with everything else. Even though, you know, this is a colorful world and they try to weave green and purple all throughout the color scheme of the movie. When you see that green, there's nothing else on screen that's like it. it just stands out. It announces he is in a different shot that's been composited onto the live action. It's just not seamless and it's distracting, but I guess it's the best they could do. I don't know if it's the best they can do. Honestly, keep in mind, Lucas was making Star Wars movies during this time. You gotta wonder if the A-listers were on Star Wars and, you know, it's like the old joke, what do you call the guy who graduated last 
last in his class at medical school, doctor. Not every CGI artist at ILM's a whiz, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Gollum and Jar Jar are better than this. I mean, I feel like they are more convincing on the screen than this character. I think they're also those – they don't have the mass that the Hulk does. He's taking up a lot of that screen. He's a bigger, more imposing character. And so, yeah, it's going to be harder to pull that off. Gollum is crawling around on the ground in dark caves most of those films. It's yeah. a lot easier when the Hulk's in the dark. It is more convincing. It's when they bring him out into that sunlight and you get that day glow green that yeah. I start to Oof. waver. It is bad, but – what I can give this movie is this. It's kind of like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, that by the end of the movie, I forget Roger Rabbit's a cell-drawn cartoon, and he's just Roger. I get past it with Hulk here. But if I ever question, how's that look? The answer is, it looks awful. And sometimes it looks spectacularly awful and draws me out. But most of this movie, he's just Hulk. He's just there. Here's the thing. I told you guys I saw this once before as a bootleg. I was convinced the effects were better than what they actually are. Most of what I saw is actually exactly as it ended up being, just with pants all the time. And that was a surprise. <laughs> I really thought... You're surprised he had pants on all the time? <laughs> no, I was surprised that they really thought these were finished. I mean, they just don't look finished. They look like good special effects on the way to being done that need about six or seven more months of work. As questionable as I thought the appearance of Hulk is, even from the start, I love his hopping. Does he hop? He does. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought he hopped? Like, I don't think of things having big mass as being buoyant and agile, <laughs> but it's kind of fun. It's kind of neo matrixy the way he kind of hops around here. It's quite fun. It was explained in the comic that his leg muscles are so powerful that he can just jump to the point of almost like flying. Yeah. No, I get that here. They do a, a great job of selling it. It's like, like I said, as much as I don't like the look of him, when he finally gets some movement on, particularly later in the movie, it's a rush. I go with the jumping. Later on, he starts running like the Roadrunner and his legs are a blur. That I don't go with quite so much. Oh, really? I would think if he's fast, he would be fast because he's making large strides and propelling himself in the air, you know, like the jumps. I wouldn't think those legs could move in a blur. He's not a Kenyan. No, but I'm just saying, isn't it fun to watch something go fast through a canyon? I mean, that's all I'm saying. It's a real base reaction. I'm just saying I'm having fun watching this thing move, even though I'm not convinced that it's real. But yeah, it would surprise me because I wouldn't have thought, not reading comics, if you were going to watch Hulk move slow and breaks everything in his path. I wouldn't expect him to leap out of this lab and hop all the way home. I gotta think it's at this moment that people who did grow up with Bixby and never read a comic are like, what the hell? And keep in mind, Ang Lee's last movie had a lot of people hopping on trees and off mountains and things. It feels like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Hulk. And Arnie, I don't think you're wrong. I, th I think a lot of people, you brought this up before, is more people relate to the Bixby Hulk than the comic book Hulk because of the popularity of that show. And, and that probably hurt some of the reaction to this film. But then, because of this whole Hulk out, General Ross comes back into Bruce's life. Now, we'd seen him before because, thanks to Talbot, he had lost Daniel Day Kim deliver a report to him about where Bruce was and that Bruce is with his daughter. He was worried about Bruce. Now that there's been a lab accident and Bruce's pants, was, was Hulk naked for all of that? He had his boxers on. 
Okay. So his wallets and jeans were found at the scene. Now they're taking him into custody. So you say, Stuart, that Ross didn't know that Bruce was experimented on or anything, but they're quite ready to blame him for some weird wanton destruction. I think that he sees it as generational. He sees it as predestined that this guy's damned, that he's going to be exactly like his father, that he's going to go down a path that is not proper. What I don't understand is why would General Ross want to shut down a guy that wants to create a super soul? That conflict doesn't make any sense. And again, just like I was confused with David Banner's motivation, Ross's motivation confuses me too. Is he trying to stop the monster? I thought he wanted to create super soldiers, but then later on, it's like he just wants to stop this monster and he almost comes off as this sympathetic character that's just trying to save his daughter. Like That's why they have Talbot, because he's the one that's always for the bad decision. The other one they vacillate between good and bad ideas but Talbot is always for the super soldiers he's always wanting to do the wrong thing I'm convinced that's why he makes it into the final draft ultimately because if he's not going to turn into a super monster he can at least rejoice when he's defeated and we don't have to kill Betty's dead and I'm fine if you have these characters with shifting motivations and they're gray but you got to let me know that it, their motivations just aren't clear throughout this film except Talbot who's the, your standard bad guy Everyone else kind of shifts around, but it's not because it's good storytelling and it's, you know, ambiguous character building. It's unclear. Yeah. But his uh, cover's blown. He's no longer Bruce Krenzler. He is Bruce Banner. We know that. And somehow Betty knows that the janitor is his father. And knows where he lives. Yes. Very, very confusing here. But let's talk about Nick Nolte. Was this right after the drunk driving arrest? It was actually during. Yeah. (laughs) Is that why you look like the way you did in that picture? Yep. Yes. (laughs) But you know what? I always think of Nick Nolte as a drunk. I mean, when I think of Nick Nolte, I think of 48 hours, another 48 hours, and Hulk. And in all three, it's like he's a wino. And I wonder, can the man be sober? No, I agree with you. Most of the parts that I think of him, even to this day, Warrior, you know, up for an Oscar for that. He is a portrait of hard living. I mean, he used to be a pretty good looking guy. I mean, he was originally on the scene as a blonde surfer dude type. He's in a movie, Peter Benchley novel, The Deep. He was the star of that movie. But yeah, I would say that 48 hours and on, it just became a pretty fast track into being a picture of someone in bad health. Yeah, I mean, down and out in Beverly Hills, is it's how I always envision him. You say his name, that's what I picture. Mm, yeah, no, he's played this part for too long. And while I appreciate actors that don't have vanity, I don't think he's ever looked worse than here. <laughs> I mean, it really is unfortunate. And it makes me wonder, what was the choice to put him in the role? Why Nick Nolte for Eric Bana's father? I don't think they physically look alike. I don't think that what Nick Nolte brings is what they're after here. If they want a haunting father figure that almost knifed his son, I wouldn't think you'd get the drunk guy. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me that they go with Nick Nolte. Plus, he's not scary. He's just kind of pathetic and a little bit funny. I mean, it's the dogs, right? The dogs tell you he's funny. And the fact that it's a poodle. Yes. (laughs) I hate poodles. They're ugly and have weird haircuts. And I can't take anyone serious with a poodle. 
No, I could even go with the poodle because it's a full-size poodle and people think poodles and they think chihuahua size, but this is a full-size poodle. I've been attacked by a full-size poodle, okay? Really? Yes, really. <laughs> no, they're mean dogs. Really? They're mean. So this Hulk behavior, they could Hulk out without even the gamma rays. That's cool. But you don't give it the frou-frou haircut if you want it to be intimidating. Right. When we get to the scene where he's turning the dogs on Jennifer Connelly, that's comedy. And that's fine. I think that that can play. I kind of liked it as that. The idea that he, this creepy old guy with his little poodle walking around and they turn into Hulk dogs. That's kind of amusing. But I wasn't watching that movie. And why am I watching that movie now? An hour into it, and the first really big battle, other than, you know, knocking around Talbot and breaking out of his house, the first big battle for Hulk is against a giant green poodle. But, Stuart, you did want the Hulk to fight monsters. That was your big problem with Bixby, is there's no monsters for him to fight. It's a stupid monster. It's a poodle. But at least it's a monster this time. Oh, yeah. Let's take a step back from the dogs, though. You mentioned Talbot. Talbot shows up at Banner's house and unprovoked just starts beating him up. Because he's evil. Yeah, this is this is lazy storytelling. Yes. This is lazy, lazy storytelling. He comes in and he goes, you go behind my back and go to Ross and starts beating him up. It's unearned and really stupid. And it bothers me. It's when the coincidences of this movie give way from improbable to dumb. The anger needs to be triggered by his father. It's bad enough that his father just sick killer poodles on his girlfriend. We don't need evil Matthew McConaughey to come in and give him the extra nudge. Yeah. So Talbot comes in, beats him up. Admittedly, we like to have someone for the Hulk to smash. He's a villain, but I don't know if they cut a scene or something that would explain why he did this. I don't think they did because Peter David has really weird motivations for it, but... Yeah, we just needed him to Hulk out, smash out of the house, and go chasing after these dogs. And if you thought the Hulk CGI was bad, let's talk dogs. I was reminded of the dog from The Mask. (laughs) There was a dog in The Mask? Yes. (laughs) And he puts on The Mask and turns into Hulk dog. Oh, I vaguely remember that. I just gotta say, there's one scene during this fight that I'm like, was this originally a 3D movie where that (laughs) poodle's head goes through the front windshield? (laughs) It's just... They turn into green dust when he, he, like, rips them apart, and yeah. In the special features, ILM didn't have the money for this. They didn't have the time. They were busy creating Coruscant for Lucas. Ang Lee had this very in-depth thing, and ILM just had to go and say, we can't do it. Pick what you want. And so they got some bottom of the barrel. I think the reason the dogs turn to dust is because we can't afford to CGI the dogs in when they're dead. So we're going to make them disappear like a video game. And you know what? I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to compliment filmmakers like Michael Bay. They would never allow this to happen to their movie. They were technicians. They're right brain people. They would find a way to get the look right. This wouldn't go out if you had a director that was a music video director that had done a lot of action movies. They would know how to do the techniques to make this more convincing. I am going to fault Lee's inexperience in the realm of CGI for the reason why we're dealing with these subpar battles. He didn't know how to get what he wanted, and I don't think that he had the people around him that were committed to getting it for him. Yeah, it really has to depend on the people around you, because I've seen so many making of nows with first-time directors, thanks to now playing in these Marvel movies, that a lot of times directors who've never worked with CG before but worked with actors get a big 
CG movie, but they have the right people there saying, here's what you need to do. And there are so many scenes here that just feel so cheap, not because the Hulk looks bad, but because the Hulk isn't in them. There's like certain things where the Hulk throws a car and you see the cars roll, but you feel like you're at the Universal Studios lot and you don't feel like the Hulk is there. No, I never felt like the Hulk was ever once in the same scene as the other characters. That's what I'm saying about the way his color comes across and the computer graphics. More than not just liking the way he looked, and I didn't really like the design of him, I did not like the fact that he did not feel a part of the screen. And I feel like that could have gotten fixed. That could have gotten fixed with some color adjustment and some finesse. They can do that. They can put CGI objects. Hell, we are 12 years beyond Terminator 2. They can do it. They just didn't do it. And yeah, if the Hulk looks bad, the dogs with their wide jaws and everything, admittedly, it did take me back to some Attack of the Clones type stuff, but in the end of Attack of the Clones, when the Jedi are fighting giant beasts, they aren't supposed to resemble anything of this Earth. And here, these dogs just look like rejects from Lucas's library. Again, I would like it if this were a Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler vehicle. If I am being asked to laugh, this is funny. This is good. Go with this. This is one hour into a stark drama about child abuse and father-son hatred. I don't want to see Hulk battle killer poodles. But you're in a Hulk movie. The Hulk has to battle something, and there have been Hulk dogs in the comics. There have been Hulk chimps, Hulk sharks. I mean, you name it, they've hulked it. And I think it fits the Hulk, but again, we're in a movie that's as schizophrenic as Banner himself. I mean, in the comics, they describe the Hulk as being a multiple personality disorder for Banner, and he has the Hulk childish personality that he retreats into. This movie is equally schizo because is it a drama is it an action i blame both the writer and the director for not giving us a cohesive movie if they wanted a drama about fathers and sons they never should have signed the line for a hulk movie well it worked for crouching tiger at least to some of us i mean it is the exact same movie it is the exact same formula of you have people that have a drama and then when it's time for them to really clash you turn it into an action scene I say go early. Have Nolte be superpower. I mean, have him get it back. Don't mess with dogs. Have him be a monster one hour into this so that we can get there because that's what they want to do. I feel like Nolte has really been screwed. The character has really been screwed. You know what I really wanted? I would have liked to have seen him have Hulk powers back in the 60s, and then when he got his wife pregnant, to have lost that powers. Then you've really exacerbated this conflict. Selling the child literally has taken his power away, and he's got to fight to get it back. That's where they're headed in the story. It's what they should have done. It would have really fixed a lot of the problems I have with the battle between these two later. You know what? For a Hulk film, I guess I appreciate the depth that Lee is bringing to it. Is it perfect? No. I like the action sequences, especially later. You say you never buy that the Hulk is interacting with anything. When we get to the scene with the tanks, I really enjoy that as an action film. Is there a perfect way to do a movie about a giant green monster who has daddy issues? I don't know if there's an Oscar-worthy performance there. I'm glad I'm getting what I'm getting, though. I'm glad Lee is at least attempting that. Can we talk about Hulk's pants? You know, I know it's a running joke that when Bill Bixby turned into Lou Ferrigno, the pants stayed on. I'll go with that. That's artistic license. This guy turns as big as a skyscraper and the pants stay on? 
No, it's the boxers and they're elastic. Or the swimsuit and it's elastic. It's, it's very stretchy. Can we not handle green dick? Could we not handle? It wasn't until what? 2009 with Watchmen when we got blue cock on the screen that we could finally confront that. Listen, Ang Lee wanted Hulk naked. Yeah. And at some point, they did some of this dogfight with Hulk naked. And you'll notice, near the end of the fight, his pants just disappear. Huh. And all of a sudden, Hulk naked. And I don't know if the dog ate him off. I'm going back to watch that scene. You don't see anything. The thing that Ang Lee said is they started blocking this whole thing out and realized they were making the Austin Powers scene because it's PG-13. You can't have Hulk Wang in the lens. And so by always having something just there to conspicuously block Hulk peen, then it was became a comedy. And so they just decided, let's leave the pants on. Well, now you've really hit it. This is PG-13. I felt like this might have been an R-rated movie. You're never going to get Marvel to sign off on an R-rated comic film. That's Well, unless it's Punisher. Punisher. Unless it's a Max thing. I mean, Ghost Rider, Punisher, Blade, yes. But you're not going to take Dr. Banner. You're not getting that rated R, no. Yeah, if they've been on kids' underwear, you're not going to get the R-rated movie. And you're right. I mean, from a marketing standpoint, that's a terrible idea. But this movie is playing like an R-rated movie to me. So it's surprising to see them all of a sudden modest about nudity. Like, we can't handle handle it but i get it they're still hiding around the illusion that they can make this all ages even though they are clearly not making something for all ages but i'll go with it it's not like i need to see the man naked but i think that's the concept they're going with he's regressing in some ways he's turning into a giant baby and i feel like let's have him in his birthday suit i'm glad to know that ang lee wanted that because i feel like that serves what he's doing with the property whether it looks good on an action figure or not i cannot speak all i'm gonna say is it's a movie about a guy who turns into a green giant. If your biggest problem is that his pants stay on, (laughs) then suspension of disbelief's already out the window. I have no problem with Hulk staying with pants. You really, Arnie, really, for all the nitpicking you've done, you have no problem with a 20-foot beast having this size 32 pants. (laughs) Elastic waistband. It's elastic. It stretches. Come on, Arnie. I have sat for you for years where you have picked tinier nits than that. And you're going to be like, it's fine. Who cares? Uh, All right. I'll let this go. You know, I don't want a giant green cock 40 foot on the screen. Okay. I don't want to see it. I don't want a Hulk triple X porn that you're talking about, Jacob. Nudity is not porn. I want to put it out there. We have this idea in America that if we see a penis... (laughs) That means it's porn because men don't have to do the nudity that women do, but it would not be porn to see Hulk naked. Okay, it would not be porn. I was just saying I don't want to see Hulk porn and I don't want to see Hulk peen. You don't think that it would serve the movie that they're making here to have him shred all of his clothes and be... Maybe he doesn't have genitalia. Or maybe that's weirder. I don't know. (laughs) It would be weirder if he doesn't. (laughs) But also, you will lose the focus of the scene if you see a giant green Dirk Diggler everybody's gonna giggle well that has more to do with us than this story yeah but this movie's marketed for americans yeah i guess you're right and it's not that i would be offended by hulk peen but it would be distracting you're right we'd be having a half an hour conversation on this damn podcast we're having a half hour conversation and it didn't even show it (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it, unfortunately, just due to viewing habits and all of that, it would be so out of place. You're right. It would detract from every scene would be about Hulk penis if he was naked. And that's not the way to go either. But I just feel like, man, it's a stretch, literally and figuratively, <laughs> to say the pants stay on. You had no problem with Ferrigno, though. Because Ferrigno wasn't 20 feet tall. He was still a human being. Well, also to that effect, one of the things that happens in this movie is the Hulk doesn't start off 20 feet tall. He starts off like 8 feet tall, and he keeps growing. And I didn't get that the first couple times I watched this movie, but now I can clearly see the scenes where the Hulk starts to like ripple and convulse and actually gets bigger. And ILM even had three different models, 8-foot Hulk, 11-foot Hulk, and 15-foot Hulk. And the time he becomes 15-foot Hulk, he was in a drape given to him by, like, the lab tech. So it's 8-foot Hulk that keeps the pants on. They did it in Watchmen. That's all I can say. But Watchmen was art. And all people talked about in Watchmen was the blue penis. And that's from the best-selling graphic novel in the last 30 years. And still people could just talk about the blue penis. They knew the blue penis was coming. And they still just freaked out about it. And every time Billy Crudup was on a talk show, they asked, was that your penis? <laughs> I feel if we're not mature enough to handle dick, then let's leave it out. Because I, I, to Arnie's point, it would have just been distracting. I understand what you're saying, Stuart. This isn't that movie, though. No, you're right. You're right. I just guess there is no answer to this. The pants have to stay on because otherwise there's too many problems. There's no way for him to keep running just out of shot and, and be new. It becomes distracting. We see too much of him head to toe for them to cheat and do torso shots. Exactly. So he has the best pair of pants ever. Show me where to buy them. <laughs> He's just always wearing the Thanksgiving pants. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> But because of this, he comes back too, and this is something I don't recall from the comics ever being portrayed. Banner is giddy with Hulk rage and power and starts to, like, choke Betty just out of the heat of the moment. He's excited. He's loving the Hulk. This is definitely an Ang Lee edition. I'm going with it. I mean, it was foreshadowed in that vision or that dream or that memory that Betty had early on in the film. And again, with that cycle of abuse, if you're abused, that carries on. And can you break that cycle? And we see that come out through Banner. You know, usually we think, oh, the abusive one would be the Hulk that he's smashing and throwing these tantrums. But we have that couple of moments with Banner where he starts to choke her. And you see his father coming out in him, even when he's not the monster. That's true. I didn't take it that way. And now that you say that, I think that's how I'll always see the scene. I thought of it as he was still slightly drunk with the power he had when he was the Hulk. He said his memories of being the Hulk were like a dream. And when he woke up as Banner, he still had... You ever have some dreams that you wake up and you still think they're real? And mine are usually nightmares. Like I dream that I have a $50,000 house repair and I go through the whole morning thinking, where am I going to get $50,000? thousand dollars and then realize it was a dream but yeah i took it as like that kind of thing for him but it completely sells me when betty's like dad i'm freaking scared it's that scene it's not the hulk that scared her it's bruce no i agree we need to understand he could go to that extreme to forgive her for what she does to turn him in because that's a shit move and we should hate her for it but we understand I wouldn't want to be in the cabin with the crazy guy that wants to turn into the green monster either. I mean, we get that. 
And that's why we forgive her for handing him off. Then things get real confusing. They trank him. They take him to an underground lab in Nevada. I love the filming of this. The way they go down that long corridor and see the map. I got to say, Stuart, did you have Akira flashbacks with this big, long corridor, the guy on ice being taken to the secret military base? Like, I, Maybe it's just because I reread that series recently, but it, it seemed very influenced by th- that manga. Oh, definitely. And like I said, even with Hulk looking like a big, fat, green baby, I was really thinking about Tetsuo at the end of the movie. Definitely an Akira homage. But at this point, I'm not sure who's in control. And that includes in the director's chair. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, all right, so Talbot is running the show underground, but Sam Elliott is still there. But he's complaining to his daughter that they're all cut out, but then she's still there. And what's going on? Who's running the show? At this point, Talbot is running the show. And he said that earlier, that he's basically running the labs, even though it's still Ross's base. Talbot is in charge of the experiments and things, although he doesn't seem like a very good scientist, I'm just going to say. No, he's an opportunist. He is the money guy. Well, he's a freaking idiot because he's like, we need cells from the Hulk. I'm hoping that there's a smarter scientist telling him this. And to get it, he goes into a room alone with Banner and just starts punching him because that worked out so well last time. Even more surprising, and I want to definitely know your take on this, Arnie, Banner can control it. He says, I won't give it to you, and he won't change into the Hulk. He is in control and will not do it. And so they have to take it down to the subconscious level and put him in a sensory deprivation tank to get that transformation. But they're writing this so that Banner now can turn it on and turn it off. What do you think? I don't think he can turn it on. I never read it as he could just hulk out when he wanted. I don't think he has full control based on, you know, the climax of the movie. But here, it's all about rage and emotion. And... They've set up Banner to be a pent-up character. He always bottles up his emotions. I never took it as he had control of the Hulk. I took it as he had control of his own emotional reaction to being beaten. And and I agree with you, Arnie. And we'll see this in, I guess, the official Avengers Hulk movie is that through meditation, through controlling his heart rate, at some level, he can control it. He could choose to suppress it. I mean, I guess if Talbot took out a two by four and started beating him to death, he would lose control. But he can control it somewhat. He could try as hard as he can. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting that having just watched all those Bixby things where I stubbed my toe and my eyes turned white, (laughs) it was nice to know that he could take a cattle prod and be like, no, I'm going to stay human. Meanwhile, his father is becoming inhuman, experimenting on himself, and we get the second transformation now an hour and a half into the movie. Again, should have happened earlier, but you know what? I like this. I really like this moment. I think this is a really weird and cool moment where he's basically the T-1000, right? I mean, anything he touches, (laughs) he can turn into. He takes the properties of whatever he touches. This guy is like an amalgam of three different characters, and the Absorbing Man is one of them. He's also partially the leader who got into a lab by pretending to be a janitor, but the Absorbing Man could take on the properties of whatever he touched. Now, this is a little bit more because he, like, becomes 
part of things he touches, whereas the Absorbing Man, he touches stone, he becomes stone. He touches steel, he becomes steel. But here, David Banner is merging his foot into a grate, and now the grate is his foot. And it's really an original character that's inspired by three different Hulk villains. Well, I just like the moment. I just like him looking at this awkward security guard and saying, you actually think you're different from me, and like pulls the floor up or whatever. Like he literally, the boundaries of his body, he goes beyond them. That it's on an atomic level, which is thematic. It's perfect. We're talking about nuclear power. He's beyond his body. I think that's a fascinating idea. You mentioned the dialogue. Actually, the line is, do you think I am separate from you? And I have no clue what the hell that means. I have no clue what the hell he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that even though they are two different individuals standing apart from one another, they are linked by molecules that he can control. But his whole speeches, starting with this very scene, become a lot of gibberish to me. You know, when the security guard walks in and says, what's happening here? He starts spouting techno babble and i don't understand if his lines are supposed to be intelligible this is again where i go back to jazz and i just think he's crazy and i don't know if when i say he i mean david banner or i mean nick nolte well i think they're having fun playing on him as crazy but i don't know i like that line i really like that line do you believe that i am separate from you i mean i think that's spooky i think that's a new concept i don't see that often and partly that's because it's hard to film but it's a very metaphysical idea that we are more than our bodies and that this guy has achieved that i think that's a nice foil for something brimming with rage with something that can absorb i mean i guess we kind of saw it in uh, X3 and then they didn't fulfill on it but it was sort of the battle I was hoping to get in the last stand when you had Phoenix and the little kid that could suck out powers and the other great thing about this line is it's the theme of this movie all these fathers and their sons or daughters they're connected Betty goes after these emotionally distant men because they remind her of her father it's this weird electric complex I don't know and then you have Banner dealing with the abuse and he becomes abusive because he's linked to his father and that somehow has been passed down to him I mean it is kind of crazy I get what you're saying Arnie and I think Nolte gets real crazy later on too crazy yes but it's a good thematic line for this film yeah I'm with you. But again, there are little interesting moments that are happening. I kind of like the scene where she takes him back to the house and he's staring at the door that he's always seen as holding the pinup rage, the one where his parents were fighting behind. All of this is nice, but I'm wondering, why is this happening? Why is Talbot allowing this to happen? Why are these people that were cut out of the program being allowed to converse and be a part of this secret base that they've never been invited to? It's They should be back in San Francisco. Talbot should be doing what he's supposed to this does not from a plot standpoint seem to really make sense i'm right there with you Stuart. and it drives home the improbability that these two grew up together yeah when she's like maybe we knew each other maybe we had ice cream i don't know i still love the look of this the scene of betty sitting on that lonely swing set it really does drive home these two are the children it's a great visual but yeah It just makes no sense to the plot when they're just going to take him back and beat him up anyway. Meanwhile, while Banner is telling the story to Betty about how he killed David's mom, 
Talbot finally gets what he wants and Banner transforms in the tank. And, you know, I was taken back. This was before the Wolverine movie, but long after Wolverine's origin was known to be in a tank. And I thought they were kind of ripping off Wolverine a little bit. It's the same summer. X2 would have come out about a month prior. And I like the idea that he had to take it to a subconscious level. That's what this movie's trying to do. You can control it in the real world. So I'm going to go to a place where you have no control. That deeper part of you where you are beyond your body. which submerged in water. Again, very Freudian. All these concepts, all this imagery. Very hard to film. I mean, I feel like they're getting to a point now where if we're not going to watch physical beings fight, what are we going to watch when these two get together? I'm still going to have that question when they get together. But yeah, I'm liking some of these details. I'm liking the ambition of watching Ang Lee really get primal. Right here is my favorite scene of this entire movie. I've watched this scene at least two dozen times since the movie's come out. Just because it's shown on TV a lot, I will always make it a point to watch the Hulk escape this base. Yeah, it's great. It may be coming too little too late, but I think everyone can breathe a sigh of release that we do get one big rush in this movie, and here it is. And thank God we finally get to see the Hulk, especially after doing this retrospective with all the Bixby films. We finally get to see the Hulk take on the U.S. military, which is such a staple in the comics. We finally get to see him smash a tank, punch a helicopter. Well, I guess we got to see him fight a helicopter in the Bixby films, but if you want to call it that. Yes, so much more dynamic here. Like, as just a fan of comic books, I like all the seriousness stuff, but in a Hulk movie, come on, you gotta have this scene. You do, and it is great. I have one complaint about it. I have the problem that the Hulk doesn't kill anybody. I think that if you pick up a tank and you chuck it over a mountain, nobody's gonna crawl out of that tank, but like a G.I. Joe cartoon from the 80s, they make damn sure to tell us every soldier is... Is okay. Yeah, I, I had that same problem because they don't show that soldier. He throws that tank. And then at the very end of the battle, you see the soldier kind of climb out and look over the battlefield. And I felt that was a cheat. I don't know if the Hulk killing people over a misunderstanding, they think he's a monster. I I don't know if that's the best way to go. But if you're going to show this level of destruction, it's a cheat. People should die. They'd have to. And it would be in self-defense. Hulk is being attacked. Did the guy in the plane that took him out in the space, did he live too? Yep. He says, I'm okay. They're either audio or video visual cues everybody's okay he crashes a helicopter from mid-air and you'll hear on the radio we're all right Uh, i wasn't paying enough attention i guess it wasn't a problem for me because i just didn't notice i guess the only death we see him cause and even that's indirectly is talbot's where talbot shoots the grenade at him and it just bounces off his skin which i thought was funny i liked it and then it went into that weird freeze frame explosion death so it wasn't as gory as it should have been it kind of reminded me of the last film when we watched the hulk die but yeah (laughs) that's not good (laughs) no it's not but they were going for that comic book effect there whatever i think that's the only death that the hulk directly causes and that's not even direct he happens to be standing there talbot basically commits suicide by hulk and let me tell you that freeze frame is so confusing that when i saw this in theaters i'm like what happened to talbot because you don't see him incinerate you see him thrown 
aside by the explosion. It wasn't till like the second viewing, I'm like, oh, they're telling us he died. Yeah, it's a really abstract way of doing it. I, thanks for bringing up the rating because I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, that's kind of a dumb way of killing off that character. And I was already mad that he didn't have the character arc that I thought he was going to go. But now I get it. We can't have blood. This is PG-13. In my mind, this plays like R until moments like this. And in... 2003, with all the ribbons on all the cars and support our troops stickers everywhere, you can't have the Hulk kill U.S. Army troops and hope that people will stay on the Hulk side, but it's still a freaking cheat. Tell me about it. This was the absolute worst year to come out with a movie in which somebody fights the military. It just was not where we were out as a culture. Nobody wanted to see the military-industrial complex get their ass kicked by Hulk or anyone. I do like when the Hulk is jumping on the plane and they take him up really high. I like the inventiveness. I mean, this is like a 15 to 20 minute battle and they keep it mixed up. He's fighting tanks. Now he's fighting helicopters. Now he's fighting airplanes. It really does not get old for me. And that's why I always turn this on. I agree. It it is infinitely watchable. I loved it at the time. It's a jolt. It's an adrenaline jolt and one sorely needed. I'm going to ask, is it coming too late? Didn't we need this moment much earlier? I will tell you this. I remember very clearly seeing this in theaters and by this scene, By the time we got here, I had a scowl of frown, my arms were crossed, and you were not going to amuse me. Mm -hmm. I was pissed. I was having a flashback to Alien 3. We're going to talk about that soon, and boy, can I not wait. But I do feel like when they get to the big action set piece in Alien 3, there's been so much drama and so much starkness that I feel like some people aren't going to ride the ride, no matter how well you do it. And this one, I feel like as much as I loved it and I've liked the whole mood of this movie, I can bet that for many people, there's just not enough of this. They wanted their Hulk movie like this start to finish. And I went with it. You know, as long as this film is, it's a long film. It never really drags for me like those TV films did where you could just tell it's just drawn out. There are moments. I think even this big 15-minute battle could have been edited down a bit. But when I was watching this for the first time, I went in here thinking, you know, everyone said this is the worst movie ever, total bomb. And I was into it. Like, I like the drama. It's not a perfectly paced film. It's not even-toned. But, Arnie, you called it out. It's like the Hulk. It's schizophrenic. It's multi-personalities. And I was going along with the ride. I love this action scene. And when I got to it, I was happy with it. But I didn't mind sitting through all the drama to get to it. It's... The high point I said of the film, I now have come to really love these scenes. Whereas the first time I saw this in theaters, it was far too little, far too late. And by the time we got to the Hulk fighting the military, I wanted to see the Hulk fighting his dad. We knew the dad was out there. We knew the dad was super powered. It feels like a stall that we have this huge fight. When the Hulk's falling off the airplane, we get this dream sequence. And I kind of like it where Banner's like shaving. We saw earlier in the film he was shaving and had the green eye. He's wiping the fog off the mirror and the Hulk's on the other side and his one finger is the side of Banner's hand. I like that as a visual. I like it as a metaphor for again Bruce's split personality but I don't know what it's trying to tell me when Hulk grabs him and says puny human isn't that his signature line don't you say that at the end of every one of these podcasts yeah I just don't know why he's saying it here and now 
Well, I agree with you. I don't know why that scene came at this moment when I'm really caught up in a big airplane battle thing. That uh, it was perplexing. There's so many opportunities for dreams in this movie. Put it in a dream sequence. Don't put it in the middle of your action scene. Yeah, it should have come much earlier in this film when he's still struggling with this beast inside of him, maybe before it had even come out in him. Yeah. Maybe the first transformation. You know, we saw early, early on, before the first transformation, that door opens and the Hulk's behind it, you know? If when the Hulk first transforms, we get this dream sequence and the Hulk is putting down Banner, I'd go with it. But where we see this, hmm, it just, yeah. Yeah. It could have come the morning after he tears up the lab. I feel like that would have been the point where I would have wanted to see it. But almost nothing that I want to see that happens in here happens in the right order at at the time that I'm ready for it. And then he finally gets to Berkeley, and you asked why we have Betty. Here's the only time she was utilized in this way. Well, I guess a little bit with him saving her from the poodles, but they bring Betty on a chopper so the Hulk won't crash the chopper, and Betty calms the Hulk into being Bruce again. Yeah, yeah, she's there to betray him every time. She was there <laughs> when he got sedated. Now she's there to calm him down so the military can catch him again. Well, she doesn't end up with him, so I guess it's okay. You're right. This scene should have happened when the Hulk dogs happened, and we should be in a shorter movie with the Nolte climax happening now. But we do get it mm, t- 20 minutes later. Nolte cut a deal. He's going to come in. He'll turn himself in, but on the condition that he gets to see his son. Is that what it was? I watched this like twice. I still don't understand why they allow this confrontation to take place. And exactly why would Ross hold his word to such a deal? Usually when you have deals like this, they're brokered by lawyers. And and Ross was not in charge of the program at the time the deal was cut. Yeah. No, none of this really makes any sense. Pile it onto the very large pile of inconsistencies and gripes. It's whatever. As long as they deliver something good, I don't care. Well, then you're going to care. <laughs> Why the hell do they have a moment of Nick Nolte biting into that pipe? That is hands down the wiggiest, <laughs> craziest thing in this crazy ass movie. Here's honest to happen. When I first saw this and he bit into the pipe and they went to where they went, I was convinced they didn't have the footage (laughs) from the final film in the bootleg. I was like, I'm going to go need to see this in theaters because the ending's not on this. I was convinced that this was not the ending that there was everyone else in the world had seen. Well, how could it be? It certainly wouldn't be satisfying if that was the O. I mean, on one hand, this is exactly the ending we want. Something with rage at his atomic core that could get so heated, he could literally become a nuclear blast, fighting the father that created him that wants to suck his life out and have it for himself. It's the battle of immortality between fathers and son. It's classic. It's Freudian. I love it. But I don't love the way that it's portrayed here on film. I feel like... I don't know. Is Ang Lee going for 2001? It just feels kind of like artsy, crazy, elemental. Nothing really makes any sense. Favorite scene of the film comes out of this for me. Really? It was my favorite scene when I saw it in the theater. And it's the cloud scene, dancing on clouds. Just I love the artsiness of it. It's just these stationary shots. Lightning goes off and you just see these stationary characters fighting. I don't know what it is about that scene, but it's 
this effective melding of comic book and movies. And it's daring. Let's take this big climax and just show it in these panel scenes. It's something that's always stuck in me. Maybe because it's just so different. It just pulled me in because it's not your typical beat em up, fight it out scene. I'll agree with you that I like the look of it. I think it's a very cool look. I love seeing the flashes in the clouds and seeing the Hulk in the poses. I've always liked that from the first time. I think it's pretty. But if this was a transition to a fight at the end, I'd probably go with it a lot more than this being the fight at the end. This is what had me thinking of 2001, because the end of that movie is, makes no sense, and there's a lot of stock footage of primordial stuff, much like this movie always has this interweaving of rocks and primordial early man Earth and all of this, and freeze frames. There's all of that stuff with Keir Dulea, like, freezing, and I really feel like Ang Lee realized that he had boxed himself into a story that had no real answer. There's no real way to resolve the conflict between fathers and sons that he had set up on a Freudian primal level. Everyone has to do that with their own father and their own therapist. And to do it in this way, he just went artsy, crazy, nuts. And I think that he knew that he couldn't deliver an ending that would satisfy in a way that people were expecting. Could he deliver an ending that was at least coherent? Because the father's like, give me your energy. Take it all! Oh, it's too much! Did he say it's too much? Yeah. All I know is all of a sudden they're in a lake. That's all (laughs) I could tell you. They're in a lake and they drop a bomb. And I thought that was the wrong way to go because if you're absorbing energy, how is that going to help the situation? I don't know what happened to Nick Nolte. I have no idea. I've seen this twice now. The first time I was convinced the footage wasn't there. (laughs) Now I just don't think that the story was there. I don't think the ending was there. It's ambiguous enough that if he comes back in a sequel, he lived. If he doesn't, he died. Yeah, I don't even feel like this is being set up for sequel. Like, I don't get the sense, and to Ang Lee's credit, that he's building a franchise here. I mean, how refreshing that they're not thinking about what they're going to do in the next movie. That's really trying to tell a self-contained story, but it's not refreshing that the story does not have an end. But I hear what you're saying. There is a beauty to watching this, but it is infuriating that this is the end of the movie. Well, there is one more scene, the one year later tag, which I really do like. We see that while one relationship between father and son ended with the death of the father, the other relationship between father and daughter was somewhat rectified. They're on speaking terms, even if she admits she'll lie to him if she needs to. Yeah, you're right. The other one has been repaired. The one that was less damaged. The father that didn't try to kill the child with a knife. They're going to at least have a phone conversation. That's progress. I want to point out, and this is something I hadn't noticed before until watching it this time that I liked, is that when Ross sets off the bomb to destroy Hulk and his father, he kind of has this pain look that he had to do that. And Betty's the one that puts her hand on his shoulder and kind of consoles him. I thought it was a subtle but a powerful moment that the whole time, you know, it's the father that doesn't like your boyfriend and he's a bad guy and my dad's a jerk because he doesn't like my boyfriend. But she turns and is consoling him now that he had to commit this act that destroyed this person that he finds a little bit of humanity and feels bad for but she's there i don't know almost supporting that decision well she'd betrayed him two or three times at that point so she was an old hat she was a bad girl all right fine (laughs) i'm gonna just say it that i like the moment (laughs) 
she was a bad girlfriend, but I hear what you're saying. I didn't notice it. I wish I had, but I was so trying to get a fix on the battle that I don't think anything else was really on my radar. I was struggling to look at something that I could see happen, and I did not. But our final scene, we see Bruce did live, went somewhere South American, and is basically, it's like a global version of the Bixby show, right? He's going to go place to place and be a doctor and try to help people, and when trouble comes, here comes the Hulk. No, this is all made up. I believe that this had to be forced on Ang Lee by the producers. This was not the ending to the Ang Lee movie. This was something to let people know they were going to try it again. And let me tell you, I walked out of that theater wanting that movie. (laughs) Exactly. It's a totally different movie. They didn't make this movie. They made something much darker and weirder. And to have this cheesy ending, I really hated that. The frog on the head, all of that. Eh. Bad. And with credits rolling, we get a Velvet Revolver song. They'd also do one later for Fantastic Four. Velvet Revolver, I guess, are Marvel fans. Yeah, I, I felt that was totally out of place. It starts with the Elfman theme and then goes into this rock song. This is not a rock song movie. No, this is what happens when you try to make an artsy film out of a superhero that needs a soundtrack with a single. Not always. We're going to get to Christopher Nolan in a few months, but it is oftentimes what happens when art and commerce collide. An uncomfortable, queasy mix of too much money and too much ambition. Uh, Yeah, you just get something incredibly strange. It's new. It's different. There's nothing like that. And it's either a blessing or a curse. I guess let's find out. All right. Well, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Hulk, Jacob? And I really don't know. I really don't know which, I think I know which way Stuart's going. Jacob, I have no clue where you're going. All right. Well, Arnie, I like that you brought up jazz, because I like jazz. I like the crazy improvisations. Sometimes it's very difficult to listen to, though. But when it comes down to it, I said I like the ambition. I like the attitude. This is not a Marvel film that we will ever get again. I'll talk more about it when we get into the proper Avenger movies. But I think it Marvel has become such a franchise that they would never hand a property over to Ang Lee or even probably a Christopher Nolan. I just don't think they're willing to take those risks to let a director bring their vision to their property anymore. And so for all the flaws in this film, the incoherent storytelling at times, I'm not sure certain people's motivations, the artistry, the solos, if you will, I like them. I enjoy them. I like that Ang Lee wanted to do a superhero movie about broken people where it's not glamorous, where it's not Superman praising Jor-El, his father, and trying to become like him. And it's Jor-El that made Superman what he is. This is the Hulk. This is a damaged character with horrible relationships. And what does that mean in the four-color comic book world? It's an interesting clash, and I don't know how you make that work. I don't know if you can, but I appreciate that Ang Lee took that effort to do something new, to do something different. And you know what? There's some great drama here. There's some great action scenes. And overall, I think this is a worthy film. I recommend this film. All right, Stuart. Well, you know, the first time I saw this movie, Jacob, I was in your corner. I saw it on the boat. I got back to America at the end of summer. 
And I found out everyone hated it and it was the worst thing in the world. And I was perplexed. I'm like, really? I saw the ambition. I saw the potential. I saw the unfinished movie. (laughs) Having seen the whole thing now and having had some perspective, I was actually a little disappointed this time that so much of the story did not work. And I, I don't know. I'm caught in the middle here. I think this is not a recommendable movie, but it's the next best thing. It is a noble failure. It is a movie that does not work, but should be seen because it does so many things in an interesting way. Having seen so many of these Marvel movies that profess to be dark, and because they have flaming skulls or guys that wear devil horns, this is a real dark movie. This is a really dark, goes to a primal, deep, dark place. It's a horror movie more than it ever is a superhero movie. And I think that's probably why I'm in its corner for so much of it. But I don't know. If it comes down to thumbs up or thumbs down, good movie or not good movie, oh, damn it. I'm going to have to say no. But I respect and understand everything you're saying, Jacob. And in some ways, I agree with you. I I don't know. It's a topsy-turvy review, but I can't recommend it as a great movie. I thought I knew which way Stuart was going, but I thought he was going to zig and he zags. Me? All right. This movie came out to contextualize one year after Spider-Man, but three short months after Daredevil. And after Spider-Man, I was hungry for comic book movies. And I said in the Daredevil podcast, I knew Daredevil wasn't going to be that great, but it would get me over till the Hulk and give me what I needed. And I was very disappointed in Daredevil at the time. Disappointment that has since been abated. I've come to accept it for what it is. Well, I went and saw the Hulk with two friends of mine. And we came back to my apartment after and had a little bit of a post-mortem. And I said that night... I thought the Daredevil was the worst comic book movie I've ever seen. And then I saw Hulk. I hated this movie because it wasn't anywhere close to what I wanted out of it when I went in. It's like if you go to a steakhouse and you order a steak and they serve you a rattlesnake. Now, I've eaten a rattlesnake. If you're in the mood for a rattlesnake, it's fine. But if you're going to a steakhouse and expecting prime rib, you're a little bit taken aback. Now, it took me five years from that first watching to revisit Hulk. And when I did, I revisited it with revised expectations. And I've come to really respect this film. I do love the action scene of Hulk versus the military when we get there. I do love the visual style of this film. I find every frame of this film to be truly gorgeous, Hulk CGI notwithstanding. The plates, though, that they put the CGI Hulk on are great. (laughs) Make a great postcard for whatever wilderness they're in. But the thing that gets me is this movie is uneven. This movie is bipolar. This movie feels like there was a lack of creative control. And maybe it's the studio versus Ang Lee. Maybe it's too many drafts of the script. But I can respect this movie for what it does. I can't damn it. I'm going to give it a weak recommend. But it's a qualified recommend. You got to know what you're in for. And that's what I didn't know when I went in that very first time. Now that I know what I'm in for, I enjoyed watching this movie again, but a lot of alarm bells of this is stupid, this makes no sense went off, and it has an unsatisfying final battle. But there's so much else in here that's good that, you know, 
I'm gonna just just eke it over the line to the weakest of recommends. And I think that's why mine is eking over the not recommends. I feel like there's so much here that's not good, despite all the things that I like, despite all of the ambition and crazy things that they try and do right. More things don't work here than do. That was the sad part to realize when I finally saw this cut. I just uh, there's too much wrong with it for me to say go for it. But you know what? I think anyone that's curious about comics and to know their potential, what they could do, I think it's worth seeing. I'd say go read Peter David's Run of the Hulk. You know, if you're curious about what comics could do, go read Peter David's Run of the Hulk, which heavily influenced this movie. It's more even, it's more comic booky, it's more fun, it's a better interweaving of humor and drama and action. This movie is a pale imitator of it, but it has its moments. So, Jacob Stewart, despite Edward Norton disagreeing, this is our last Hulk film for this retrospective. Yes, it is. Not that I'm happy about that or anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm turning into a giant beast that's brimming with happiness. I don't know. I think you've turned into the Red Hulk as every arrow this whole retrospective has been red. (laughs) Uh, That's probably my new superhero identity. Red (laughs) Arrow. I will show up to squash your hope. That's DC, though. (laughs) Wait, That's actually a superhero. Oh, and I was already kind of typing out the trademark. (laughs) Well, this is the last non-Avengers retrospective. I mean, it's kind of Avengers, but it's time. We've been building for a year. It's time for the final countdown. Marvel said, enough of you, Ang Lee. Enough of you guys all screwing up our properties. No more Peter Nagayan and his Italian Red Skull in France or wherever they were. Marvel takes over and brings all the movies we're going to be going through all the official marvel movies we're in the final few weeks before avengers hit screens i couldn't be more excited we have iron man next week incredible hulk a week after that iron man 2 thor captain america and then what we've been doing it all for the avengers it's been a long road it sure has and you know the avengers isn't the end of it we do have spidey this summer he's kind of the denouement isn't he yeah he's sort of the aftermath but you know i will say this i know that i have been red arrow for much of marvel but i am genuinely excited for these upcoming movies i actually think there's a good shot that i'm going to like most of them maybe all of them i think that there is something authentic about these being the official ones i feel like just judging from my memories of iron man if they all go down that path i I could be giving some green arrows finally well we'll find out about that next week so we'll talk to you then puny humans fine battle we had a banner me and your troll I told you he'd win the day, Banner. Odin willed it. When the troll's upon you, you're a mighty fighter. You're not bad yourself. (laughs) I know. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Incredible Hulk retrospective series. You know what scares me the most? Is it when it happens? When it comes over me? And I totally lose control? I like it. Part of our Marvel Comics movie retrospective series. Whether you know or care, I've got a lot of pride in what you've done. 
but this is too big for you. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another movie based on the Marvel superheroes through the release of The Avengers this May. I've done my homework. The work you're doing here is dynamite. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to check our archives where you can find reviews of other Marvel comic movie series, such as Ghost Rider, X-Men, Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, Blade, and Captain America. You think I should? Yeah, you're great with that stuff. If we don't get impressive results today, we're going to have a really hard sell come Tuesday. Well then, let's go be impressive. You can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Predator, Rocky, Rambo, Star Trek, Terminator, The X-Files, and many more. How little you understand, Miss Ross, and how dangerous your ignorance has become. You will also find individual movie reviews, such as Cowboys and Aliens, Inception, and Avatar. It was like a dream. About what? Rage. Power. And freedom. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. We're going to have to watch that temper of yours. You know, my mother always used to tell me getting angry doesn't help. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. You can trust me to do what I think is right, not what you think you want. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Let's go. I'll go. You just watch me go. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You cannot imagine the unbearable finality of it. What can I do? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Come on, Bruce. Let's see what you got. You think you can live with it? Take it! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, teddy bears, and much more. You see, I can partake with the essences of all things. (laughs) Do you really believe that I am separate from you? Now Playing's Incredible Hulk Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. You poor soul. I guess we've all got our crosses to carry. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. This will be the greatest performance of your life. And the last. Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises, Universal Studios, or Image Entertainment. The Incredible Hulk and all of the Marvel Universe contains is the property and trademark of the Disney Company and no infringement is intended. Peace of mind is for the dead, my friend. I guarantee. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Think of all the harm they've done to you, to me, to humanity. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I suppose I'm leaving now. Good guess. We've caused enough trouble. Call me when there is war to wage, demons to fight. Farewell. Farewell.
they're shut down by a general who does not want to make super shoulder. Also, let me say that again and say it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) The style in these early dramatic scenes is lessened. I think the style becomes far more heightened the more the movie hulks out. Hold on, I'm going to have to close the door. Can you guys hear that? Yeah, I was going to say, I hear dogs, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of editing. (laughs) It's the sound effects for when we talk about the monster dogs. I was about to say, it's Hulk dogs. Just wait ten minutes, we'll get there. (laughs) Ten minutes, you're so optimistic. (laughs) I know, two hours, what time is it? Maybe by midnight. Yeah, I'm trying to make a midnight show here. We got two more hours. I don't know. <laughs> and we're an hour in, by the way. <laughs> 30 minutes. Right, um... What is Dexter Jester? He's he, he, just a bad Star Wars character. <laughs> yeah. Okay. A buffoon. Okay. <laughs> Can I just tell you, never watch The Lincoln Lawyer, because it f- with my head to have both of them in the same movie. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is weird. You ever have some dreams that you wake up and you still think they're real? And, you know, you, you have... You got the morning wood. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. <laughs> I... Stuart, you have your penis. I have the problem that the Hulk doesn't kill anybody. I but- hope so. <laughs> Last time I checked. <laughs> Let me be sure. Yep. <laughs> I agree. I, I could watch. Can you say that not yawning? Yes. yes. Yawn. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah!